Welcome to the MCG Podcast. In this episode, MCG Principal and Consultant Aaron Malloy talks with retina surgeon Dr. Jorge Calzada and optometrist Dr. Sarah Maxey of Deep Blue Retina. Practicing out of Mississippi, this ophthalmic team shares their experience with telemedicine and other necessary adaptations during the COVID era. Hi, I'm Leah, your host, Aaron, Dr. Calzada, Dr. Maxey. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us too. So I think maybe the best way to start off this conversation is to have you, Dr. Calzada, uh, tell us, as a retina surgeon who treats patients in both ASC and hospital settings, how did the initial COVID-19 closures affect your practice? And what I mean by that is, how did you handle your cases? What changes did your practice make to adapt? And how did you make patients feel safe, especially in the beginning when they were most reluctant to leave home? There's two components to this. Um, one is surgeries and the other one is procedures in the office and clinic patients. And <clears throat> both have different set of logistics and issues. What we first quickly noticed um, was that patients were getting afraid, were being afraid. This is even before the lockdown was officially instituted. Then almost simultaneously, we had uh, the, the state health department call our surgery centers and hospitals, but the hospitals were doing this independently and said, um, elective surgeries are now not allowed. So all elective surgeries have to be stopped. You're only gonna be able to perform um, non-elective procedures. So procedures that could not wait. Um, <clears throat> so that's one part of the, one aspect. Then the other aspect that says the clinic, that the clinic volume, uh, and I will bring Dr. Maxi in, in that regard, because he was very helpful in that process, but we were, we, we had to make very proactive decisions in the clinic side um, to, to follow the, the approved guidelines. I think rather than just winging it, we, that, that proactive approach was what we had to make a decision on, uh, what patients need to come in, what patients don't need to come in, and, and when. So I'll let Dr. Maxi talk about that, but let me tell about the surgery. So the surgeries, what quickly happened was our surgery center had to close down because there were not enough um, unelective or, or critical patients or important patients that could not wait to justify the surgery center maintaining its doors open. So then what ended up happening was we, were, we had to reroute all patients to the hospitals and uh, the hospital that we're working through um, created a system in which we had to basically put a justification uh, before any surgery was scheduled to say, why does this patient have to be operated on now and not a month or two from now? And then that would go to some form of committee. I don't know who formed that committee. And then within 24 to 48 hours, they would say, yes, your case can be scheduled. So there was a new process in there. So then simultaneously what we did was we realized that we were not gonna be doing a bunch of surgeries. So on the clinic side, we said, okay, let's use the clinic time, the time that we would be in surgery to open up clinic patients so that we can at least open up some space to bring patients in a more um, sort of open way. And I think our surgical volume went down dramatically. Uh, we were doing 10 approximate cases a week. We went down to like one or two cases a week. And we ended up having a list of the patients before the, the COVID lockdown to be scheduled. And now we're going down that list. So Dr. Maxey, can you kind of speak to the patients coming into the clinic? What precautions did you put in place? I think that the patients wanted to know that they were going to be safe coming to the office. And so a lot of them didn't have a problem with the fact that we were spacing our appointments out every 30 minutes. We also didn't have a lot of staff 
during that time. Um, so that called for a lot of our staff having to take on non-traditional roles. But yeah, overall, we did what we could to try to keep our patients from being moved around the office like they normally would, um, trying to keep them in one place to kind of keep them from coming into contact with each other. And in some ways, now that we're kind of having a few more patients in our office now, we've decided that that might actually be a little bit better, a little bit more efficient to kind of keep the patients from moving as much as we did before. But yeah, uh, I know for one thing, I was on the phone um, with a lot of patients trying to figure out, are you having any problems? Do we really need to see you? A lot of those patients that were at high risk were afraid to come in, but of course, like being able to walk them through the process of what we were doing in our office and taking the precautions, some of them did come in and a lot of them didn't. So to that point, the, the decision that we made was that we could not allow the front desk staff to be making the decisions of the scheduling. We needed, we needed uh, somebody with an understanding of patients' pathologies and diagnoses. And, and Dr. Maxi took on that role in a very heavy way, and I'm very grateful for that. So she could say, looking at a patient's chart, the patient's previous history, patient's diagnosis, and say, okay, you really need to come in. Or no, as a matter of fact, you can push it out a month or two. Of course, there were patients that would give us certain keywords, I'm losing vision, and then we had to bring him in. And we found ourselves that sometimes we found some patients that really did not need to come in, but we did the right thing because we could have not said no. Now, on the, now that we're opening up, we're starting to see patients that perhaps should have come in, not because of our fault, but patients that did not go to their optometrist or the referring doctors, they were losing vision, they were afraid, and now they're coming in a month later, perhaps with permanent vision loss that we could have treated a month ago. So there have some issues. Were there any non-traditional staffing roles that you found yourselves taking on? So I've been working in eye care in a, for a long time, like ever since high school-ish. So I have picked up a few things along the way. Calling patients is something that I did a lot, obviously not in that same role of looking at their diagnoses. Scheduling appointments um, is something else that I did and also did throughout this time. Also doing things like running technology, taking photos and running scans and whatnot, pre-testing patients, um, checking temperatures at the door, like just trying to make myself as useful as possible. <laughs> and the tech staff as well. So yes. we have some tech staff that ended up basically being, you know, jacks of all trade. Yes. <laughs> so we reduced the tech staff to the minimum, both from a financial perspective, uh, also because we didn't want that many people here, and also because the number of patients didn't justify that the number of people here. But then everybody was able to do a little bit of different roles. Now, I know I'm expanding on this on this question, but I think this is an important point to make is to make is that we quickly recognize that this was an opportunity that needed to be taken advantage of. Meaning we could have chosen to just sit and complain about not having enough patients, but then we said, okay, what can we do with this short staff in a way that benefits the practice and the patients ultimately? So for example, Dr. Maxi's involvement in scheduling patients, which is usually something that the front desk would do, allowed us to understand better what the patient experience that they were calling the referring doctor experience and then be able to say okay now rather than have a, a direction led by the front desk staff now 
the doctors know how it happens. Let's address that process and create a more streamlined, more modern, more directed way of doing so. We did that with different other business processes in the practice. And I think, I think that we did really well in, yeah. in utilizing the, the COVID lockdown time for not business growth, but improving efficiencies that we otherwise did not have the time to do. So how, what was one of the main ways that you were communicating with patients other than giving them calls to let them know about these changes? Honestly, I was mainly just calling them. I am very hesitant to just leave a message even. Like I don't want to like contact anyone like on a Facebook message or whatever. Like I need to talk ex directly to the patient and I am because I've been on the phones a lot, like in my lifetime, like I'm kind of relentless, like when it comes to like trying to get in touch with the patient. So until I've talked to them, I'm not going to give up to so make sure that you're doing okay. That, you know, that you know that you have an appointment coming up with us. We still want to see you because you're at a high risk. But yeah, I think that directly talking to them on the phone is, is the best way to do it. That's actually a good segue into our next question. Dr. Calzada, I know your practice sort of dipped its toes into telemedicine. Can you describe your experience? So we, we, that's another thing that we spend some time first analyzing telemedicine, analyzing the rules for telemedicine, analyzing how to, how to institute telemedicine in the practice, and then recognizing how they don't really work for us. <laughs> because I think that it was a very good thing in a broad sense for CMS and for different payers to, to come up with telemedicine guidelines that that opened up that possibility we we found two broad problems with it one problem is that our specialty in in not just ophthalmology but specifically retina basically the inside of the eye really didn't lend itself to telemedicine like we wanted it to be in other words we could talk to a patient and say are you doing okay and that's you know what that's important the patient's subjective impression of what they're seeing uh, so that if the patient says, well, I'm doing worse, well, you got to come in. But we really could not do more than just effectively a telescreening to say, do, can you stay home or do you need to come in? So that, that was initially our intention was to do it telemedicine-wise, but we were able to do it equally as well with phone conversations. And then the other part was just a lot of patients are not technical savvy, computer savvy, and it was almost too much effort to achieve little. Is, is that a way of putting it, Yeah, Sarah? I think so. You know? I do think though that us learning about telemedicine kind of being thrown in, you know, into this coronavirus situation, um, it did help us again to kind of figure out what our electronic medical record system can do for us. Yeah. And that was kind of more the catalyst um, than anything uh, to kind of help us do a deep dive into that and see what we can improve in our office and every day. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and I haven't completely given up. I'm not sure if you have uh, on telemedicine, but, but I think that it, there's still a few little pieces of that puzzle for our specialty that needs to be brought in. The, the patient's ability to check their vision at home. There's some apps for that. Uh, ability to check the pressure, the eye pressure at home. There's a home-based OCT that's been developed. So, I think that when you put those few pieces together, we may have for our specialty that, but there's some other specialties like say dermatology that is just, you know, telemedicine should be a very straightforward for them to, to incorporate. 
So I'd like to kind of shift the gears now and talk to the PPP loan program. Erin, I know you're the MCG consultant that assisted Dr. Calzada with the PPP loan program. Um, can you speak to how the practice handled it? Any problems that you may have encountered? We definitely had our um, encounters with problems. We have uh, one of the major financial institutions as our primary banking relationship. And while they were working very hard to get the application out as fast as possible to all their customers, they were trying to build a platform in which that they could receive and process a ton of applications very quickly. It, got, it started getting to the point where we were worried that our application wouldn't be approved before funding ran out. We actually made an 11th hour decision to go with a local bank that we didn't previously have an, a relationship with and they were able to get our application processed and through just in the time before they ran out of funds. So we were lucky enough to get approved and get the funds you know, ahead of the second wave uh, that's still going on right now. So because we weren't able, since, you know, because we were still seeing patients and still needing staff to come in each day, it served us very well in that we had the money sooner rather than later and it could help us you know, in April and the beginning of May and, and not necessarily later when the collections start to pick up again. I want to kind of reinforce what Aaron was saying. So because from the perspective of the relationship of administrator, owner, individuals. This was one of those situations where we really had to put our brains together and say, how are we going to do this? And um, you you have, I'm always kind of pushing on the, Aaron, how are we doing financially? How are we doing financially? Because, you know, we, and then she pulls back and says, well, this is what I think we need to do on the PPP loan. And that was a very interesting phone call. And I'm very grateful for Aaron for picking that up when we were working, as she pointed out, with a very large financial institution very strong bank um, and then we were finding out that we were having issues with getting this bank uh, the loan approved and so we used a small local bank from Missouri and they actually worked it out and interestingly enough about a week or two later I sent Aaron a, a Wall Street Journal uh, document a paper that they said guess what large financial institutions were actually not the best institutions it was actually the local small banks so you know, we were able to figure that out on the go and make a decision. So that was really good. But then the second part of the PPP loan is, okay, you have the financial aspect of the, with the PPP loan, the payroll protection plan. I think I got it right there. And the concept was one that many other countries have not done, which is basically say, okay, you have employees. The employees are not financially well because they don't have money coming in. And so rather than pay the employees directly, which the government did put some support for individuals to say, okay, we're going to put support for the employers, but these employers are going to be effectively the custodians of a pot of money that they're going to work with. But ultimately the majority of that money is the employees. So create a system that works for your practice. And I think every practice is going to come up with different ways about it. But what we did was say, okay, how does this play out in terms of hours per employee per week? And it came down to the employees had to be basically working full time. But then you have the separate question is now you have employees coming full time, yet we don't have enough full time work from the standard perspective of patients. Because 
even though we've predicted a surge of patients, and I keep on talking about that, and then I see that there's other people that have used a similar name for the, the surge, we're not seeing a surge. We're maybe seeing a swell, meaning instead of a spike, we're seeing the swell come over. And I think that is probably more psychological than anything, meaning that there are still patients that are afraid. So we're having a lot of uh, our practices in Mississippi, a very conservative state, and we have a lot of conservative patients that are like, I don't care what the government says, I don't trust this or that, and they're the ones coming. But then we have a lot of patients that are very worried, and they call and say, what are you guys doing for this? For example, uh, some of the people were saying, and I thought that was a very interesting question, how are the doctors being tested every day? Which is uh, a curious way. It's like, we're not worried about the other patients. We're worried about these doctors. So um, I, I, we respect that question. It's a, it's a smart question. So now, okay, so now we have the employees back. We don't have enough work for them as a standard way. So we are now creating a list, call them honeydews, <laughs> practice honeydews, of things that would or should have been done but we never can get to because we're either too busy or too distracted and say, okay, we're walking around the office and saying, what things need to be improved? Where can we work? And now we have, you know, employee, manpower, woman power, you know, employee power. So let's utilize those people and okay, rather than pay them to stay at home, which ultimately the government really doesn't care. The government, what they wanted was to have money in the hands of the pay of the of the employees so what we're saying is that we're going to pay you but we're trying to find things for you to do that need to be done for the office basically uh, when practices and ASCs received the go-ahead to begin phase one of resuming business um, how did your patients react you've kind of touched on this a little bit but was that what you expected and what kind of um, safety precautions do you have now in effect so we're still um, kind of getting some mixed responses from patients. There are still patients that are calling and saying, is it safe? Like, should I wait? Should I just wait till June or July? But there are patients who are like, I'm so glad to be back in the office. Now, most of our patients, I would say most are still coming in with masks and gloves on and we're encouraging patients to wear masks and we're still having our staff continue to wear masks. We're still trying to check for symptoms and check temperatures at the door. Um, for anybody who, com who comes back, because we are still trying to keep our office as compliant with the social distancing as possible. In, in the surgery side, so now we're, we're starting to see the opening. The surgery center has decided to open, but they've also had to have issues. They had to postpone it. They needed to understand the guidelines better. Some of the doctors didn't have patients that they want to book. So they needed to have enough doctors with enough patients to have to start booking patients. Uh, so that's been a little bit interesting. Then the, the other issue is testing. So the hospital has decided, which makes sense, that if you're going to bring an emergency patient, you're going to treat them as if they were COVID positive, which means <clears throat> that's a special way of dealing it with a with a, a negative pressure room instead of a standard positive pressure operating room and different gowning procedures or whatever. But they're saying, okay, if you don't have to bring an emergency within 24 hours, then we will test them for COVID. So then when they are negative, then we could proceed and treat them as a regular patient or regular uh, situation. So that's more or less 
that that logistic processing has created uh, a, a good safety measure, but at the same time, a logistics measure that, in my opinion, has kind of slowed down the ASC's buildup of their of their uh, surgical volume. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up the podcast? Well, I, I was just going to say that you know we nobody knew that this was coming. We could not predict that COVID was coming, but we can predict that this is not going to be the last time that we're going to have some form of disruption into our practice. I think the biggest thing that made COVID different was the fact that it was a global disruption rather than a localized disruption. But it did give us a concept of saying, how are we going to do this? Looking to our data, make sure that we have access to the data, not just simply located here so we can take take care of patients. And, and ultimately, to have an open mind and say, okay, we're going to make this work. Perhaps we're not going to be productive on a standard revenue patient productivity, but the more that we use the time and efforts and the staff and our minds, particularly into our practice and business operations, the better we can be on a global perspective, from a general perspective, after we, after we come out of this lockdown business. Aaron, Dr. Calzada, Dr. Maxi, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to the MCG podcast. Listen to more medical industry podcasts by visiting medcgroup.com. Then click the podcast icon or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider.